the National Archives podcast series. From Mount Batten to Patton, the last proconsuls and the ending of the British Empire, presented by Tony Stockwell. Well, my talk this afternoon is from Mount Batten to Patton, last proconsuls and the ending of the British Empire. And I want to start in Hong Kong on the night of the 30th of June, 1st of July, 1997. Let me take you back to that night, to the fireworks, to the torrential rain, and to the tearful last governor, Chris Patton, gathering up the Union flag as British rule came to an end. Now, during the previous half century, proconsuls had bowed out of office in an imperial recessional marked by pageantry in one territory after another, starting with India in August 1947. These events followed a more or less standard form of flag ceremonies, military tattoos, pyrotechnics, and state banquets, and they were usually attended by a member of the royal family. Sometimes there were minor hitches. On Kenya's Day of Independence, the 12th of December 1963, for example, heavy rain caused such chaos on the route to the stadium in Nairobi that the British Secretary of State missed the occasion altogether. On other occasions, British withdrawal was more fraught. On the eve of independence in Burma, January 1948, it was reported that there was a governor, but no British administration. But at least the governor, Sir Hubert Rance, managed to depart with all due honours. Far worse was the confusion in Palestine, which the British left in May 1948, without reaching a settlement and without retaining their dignity. The High Commissioner... Sir Alan Cunningham, ran the gauntlet of Jewish and Arab irregular troops as he was driven in a bulletproof car from Jerusalem to the port of Haifa. His chief secretary, back at the King David's Hotel, Henry Gurney, told awaiting journalists that he would leave the keys of government under the mat, as he put it, for anyone who might chance to find them. Nearly 20 years later, Humphrey Trevelyan agreed to be the last High Commissioner in Aden on condition that the Wilson Cabinet would not let the country collapse into another Palestine. Nevertheless, within a few months of his arrival, Trevelyan was being briskly escorted to the harbour, accompanied by a military band playing Things Ain't What They Used To Be. And so 30 years after Aden brings us to Hong Kong. And the eyes of the world were upon that ceremony because advantages in technology meant that pictures of its formal retrocession to China were instantly beamed round the world. The occasion was attended by Prime Minister Blair, former Prime Minister Major, the Prince of Wales and Chinese officials from Beijing whom Prince Charles would describe as appalling old waxworks. After the handover, British dignitaries embarked on the Royal Yacht Britannia and sailed away through a storm of fireworks 
to join the largest fleet ever assembled east of Suez since the closure of the base in Singapore. When they reached Manila, the Pattons, as a family, boarded a plane for Britain. For the last governor, empire ended with a bump when he joined the queue for a taxi at Heathrow Airport. That the end came piecemeal, at different speeds, in different places, and with imperial reversal in one part, often followed by imperial revival in another, suggests that empire lacked structure and form. Indeed, even at its greatest extent, the empire was a ragbag of territories, varying in size, in wealth, ethnic composition, culture, political development, economic importance, strategic significance. These territories ranged from India, which was an empire in itself, to microstates such as the key fortress colonies of Singapore, Malta and Aden, or the penurious island states in the Caribbean, Pacific Ocean and Indian Ocean. They included crown colonies, where Britain was the sovereign power, protected states, where the British were supposed to act merely in an advisory capacity, and dominions of white settlement, which were already self-governing. In some of these dependencies, the British presence was centuries old. In others, it was recent and short-lived. But this empire was neither monolithic nor was it centralised. It was a collection of diverse regimes to which government functions had more or less been devolved. Any overarching metropolitan control was further impeded by the spread of imperial responsibilities over several competing Whitehall departments. The India Office, the Colonial Office, the Foreign Office, the Service Ministries, the Treasury and so on and so forth. The key link between the centre and periphery of this geographically fragmented and administratively incoherent empire was the proconsul. And what I'll be arguing today is that the proconsul was never more important for imperial management than during the years of retreat. Now proconsul is a catch-all term. It includes viceroys, governors general, governors, high commissioners, commissioners. It embraces all the Crown's representatives in Britain's scattered dependencies. And I'll probably be using proconsul and governor interchangeable as I go on. The selection of proconsuls was a matter of finding horses for courses. Let's take India first. All 20th century viceroys were chosen from outside the ranks of the Indian civil service, though both the last and the penultimate viceroys had previously served in Asia in other capacities. Lord Wavell had commanded the Indian Army, and his successor, Lord Mountbatten, had been Supreme Allied Commander Southeast Asia during the Second World War. These great ornamentals were expected to have wide experience of public affairs and a commanding presence, to be at ease in high society and in political circles back home. Some viceroys were aristocrats by birth, the others were raised to the peerage before they went out to India. 
At the other end of the spectrum of territories was the governorship of the Falkland Islands, which was described by one official as a mixture of old-fashioned squire and chairman of a rural district council. And then there were military governors, whether in peace or in, in war, Bermuda, Gibraltar and Malta were traditionally ruled by senior army officers. Dire security problems elsewhere could also lead to military appointments. General Rance and Alan Cunningham to post-war Burma and Palestine, for example. General Templer and Field Marshal Harding to fight insurgencies in Malaya and Cyprus later in the 1950s. Governorships of certain dependencies like Aden and Hong Kong attracted career diplomats. And then the Home Civil Service was another source of proconsul, especially after 1945 when, as we shall see, the challenges of post-war reconstruction increased the flow of Whitehall officials to proconsular positions. Candidates for governorships in Central and East Africa particularly Kenya, were expected to get along with white settlers. Particular colonial problems might call for governors with appropriate specialist knowledge of, say, constitutional law or arcane technicalities of local government. For example, in 1946, Attlee sent out to Malta the former mayor of Battersea and Labour MP Francis Douglas in order to give a lead in reconstruction and the local government and constitutional development of that war-damaged island. Most governors, though, were generalists, steeped in the principles and practices of colonial administration. 78 of the 110 gubernatorial appointments that were made by the colonial office between 1948 and 1960 were of governors who came from the colonial service. As the pace towards self-determination quickened, or when colonial crises embarrassed the UK government at home and abroad, prime ministers expected their proconsuls to be skilled in handling obstreperous legislatures and populist politicians. And for this reason, they might dispense with the services of professional administrators and instead call upon professional politicians in order to negotiate a way out of empire. And this Margaret Thatcher did when she sent Christopher Soames to Rhodesia. And so too did John Major when he dispatched Chris Patton to Hong Kong. In very different circumstances, a prime minister might banish to a faraway proconsular posting any public figure who had fallen from favour and might cause embarrassment. Churchill, for example, in effect exiled the Duke of Windsor to the Bahamas in 1940 and looked out for colonial positions for supporters of Neville Chamberlain and proposed the governorship of Bombay as a billet for Field Marshal Dill, in whom he had lost confidence as his chief of the Imperial General Staff, and transferred Wavell, a man who had proved unlucky in war, from the battlefield to Lutchen's New Delhi. Sopron proconsuls were appointed from a variety of backgrounds. 
And when a a governorship fell vacant, the pack of possible candidates was shuffled and one or two wild cards were introduced. A number of considerations weighed with ministers making decisions. Changing territorial priorities was one. The need to match the qualities of the man with the demands of the post was another. The private life and connections of the candidate whether he could be spared from his current jobs, whether his wife posed a risk as First Lady. Filling vacancies in the 50-odd dependencies for which the colonial office was responsible could not be done like moving chess men about a board. Indeed, as one Secretary of State admitted, the most carefully laid plans are liable, one might cynically say certain, to be upset. They might be upset by the illness or the death or the abject failure of an incumbent. And in the event of a governor's recall or his enforced resignation, London might soften the blow by referring to a necessary change in the bowling and then choose a replacement who is renowned for his safe pair of hands. Or alternatively, as when Rance was appointed to Burma, or Mountbatten to India, or Templar to Malaya, or Harding to Cyprus, a new broom was thought necessary. But the the precipitate removal of a governor was always the last resort. It was an admission of failure, notwithstanding excuses on medical grounds or platitudes about change being one of style rather than of policy. Though proconsuls certainly differed in style, though they were very largely establishment figures, these men, and they were all men, until Dr Hilda Louisa Gibbs Bino was appointed Governor of Grenada in 1968, these men came in all sizes, from varied backgrounds and with contrasting views. The Oxford Dictionary of National Biography bristles with burly governors who in their prime were larger-than-life figures, like Miles Lampson or Edward Twining or Andrew Cohen or Christopher Soames. At six feet five and 18 stone, Sir Miles Lampson was not to be trifled with. It was he who, in 1942 trained the guns of British tanks upon the Abdim Palace in Cairo in order to prevent the King of Egypt siding with the Axis powers. Sir Edward Twining, later Baron Twining of Tanganyika and Godalming. Sir Edward Twining was said to look every inch a chief among Africans. Christopher Soames, Churchill's son-in-law and Thatcher's last governor of Rhodesia, was forthright and convivial, a man whose voice was always to be heard in the next room. And Andrew Cohen, who was posted to Uganda after leading the Africa division of the colonial office, was endowed with similar giant stature, appetite and energy. One of Cohen's subordinates has recalled that things were never quite the same again whenever Cohen burst in, hands full of stuffed briefcases, his keys on the rim of his Homburg clenched between his teeth. By contrast, the last governor of war-torn Aden, Sir Humphrey Trevelyan, was a small but nonetheless phenomenally energetic man, 
a leprechaun with a twinkling brown face, as Dennis Healy once described him. Three soldier governors, Cunningham, last High Commissioner in Palestine, Templar, Tiger of Malaya, Harding, who preceded Hugh Foote in Cyprus. These three soldier governors were also physically slight, but no less vigorous. Long after he had retired, Templar beat off three muggers while walking his dog in a London square. Proconsuls differed in temperament as well as in physique. Alongside die-hard paternalists of the old school like Miles Lampson, we find progressives and modernizers such as Mountbatten in India, Malcolm MacDonald in Southeast Asia and Kenya, Cohen in Uganda, Hugh Foote in Cyprus, Patton in Hong Kong. While Mountbatten certainly reveled in the flummery of, ornamental, of his own ornamental role, he also cultivated his image as the people's proconsul. MacDonald and Patton flouted custom and caused consternation amongst the old guard by indulging in walkabouts in city streets and the shirt-sleeve order. Cohen took against the humbug of ceremony and broke with precedent by inviting Africans and Asians into Government House Uganda. Though he was known as the right foot to Michael's left, Hugh Foot, last governor of Cyprus, was certainly at the liberal end of the colonial spectrum. But perhaps more effective than either paternalists or progressives were the pragmatists, those who had been born and reared as imperialists but who adapted to changing times and circumstances. Like Sir Charles Arden Clarke, the last governor of the Gold Coast, Ghana. Arden Clarke proved an inspired choice. Although he had been groomed in the old school of personal rule, he succeeded in striking up a fruitful relationship with the Ghanaian nationalist leader, Kwame Nkrumah. This relationship between governor and nationalist two men of power who could do business with each other, ensured the peaceful transition to independence in 1957. Another pragmatist was the craggily forbidding Templar, who accepted Churchill's invitation to be Malayan Supremo only on condition that his brief included a clear political objective, the eventual achievement of a united, self-governing, Malayan nation. On his arrival in Malaya, one of his first deeds of this seemingly reactionary soldier was to end the ban on non-Europeans entering colonial clubs. Not surprisingly, such a variety of personalities pursued a wide range of recreational interests. Some pursued a genuine passion for the flora or the fauna or the cultures of the countries where they were posted. During his years as Commissioner General in Southeast Asia, for example, Malcolm MacDonald was an indefatigable ornithologist and an inveterate collector of Chinese porcelain, which he bequeathed to Durham University, where he was later Chancellor. While Commander-in-Chief in India, and just before he became Viceroy, Wavell compiled other men's flowers, an anthology of poetry, all of which he could recite off by heart. Sir Humphrey Trevelyan, 
was an accomplished musician, and he made sure that there was a grand piano in Government House before he made his departure for Aden. This he would play while the bullets sang in the night air. Sir Charles Johnston, a predecessor of Trevelyan in South Arabia, was an author and collaborated with his wife, a descendant of the Tsar Nicholas, collaborated with his wife in translating Russian poetry into English rhyming verse. Well, so much for the personalities and their pastimes. What about their work? Charles Johnston, he who translated Russian poetry, immediately noted a change in his status and function when after a career as a diplomat, he became governor of South Arabia. He wrote, as governor, I knew I should be much more my own master than as ambassador. As governor, I should hold executive power and would myself have to take most of the decisions instead of observing and merely reporting to London on decisions taken by other people. And he added, a governor is in an utterly minute way a monarch who must both reign and rule. His authority stemmed from king or queen, not from government ministers, still less from the people. Proconsuls always took precedence over cabinet ministers who visited their patch. When Harold Macmillan came down to breakfast at Government House in Lagos during his Wind of Change tour of Africa in 1960, the Prime Minister fastidiously bowed in deference to the Governor of Nigeria, Sir James Robertson. Proconsuls, it appeared, were monarchs of all they surveyed. They had achieved this status largely as a result of London's willingness to leave the man on the spot to rule as best he could with minimum fuss and expense. This, this salutary neglect allowed proconsuls considerable autonomy, but their omnipotence was an illusion. After all, until the 1940s, governors weren't expected to do very much. His functions were largely restricted to counting heads, raising revenue, settling land ownership, keeping the peace. But as global communications improved, London came to expect more from its proconsuls, and London was better able to supervise what the proconsuls did. Those pioneers who had tended to act first and report back later were replaced by prefects, whose public responsibilities and public conduct were more carefully regulated. During the interwar years, the metropolitan government intruded more and more into colonial administration to promote trade, for example, or to suppress upheavals in India, Palestine and the West Indies. Indeed, the pomp surrounding the proconsul could not long disguise the proconsul's real position. To all intents and purposes, he was an agent of British ministers. No 20th century proconsul was able to defy instructions from London. None even tried to convert his office into a base from which he might mount a bid for power at home. It was the Secretary of State, sometimes it was the Prime Minister, who selected them and on occasions 
removed them. Another limitation upon their freedom of action was set by local circumstances in which they operated. Like all imperial rulers, in order to survive, they had little option but to govern through indigenous institutions and in collaboration with local potentates. Prudently, they accommodated the interests of chiefs and princes. They ignored at their peril the demands of settler farmers or of European businessmen or of the labouring masses, or of emergent nationalists. Thus, positioned as the vital link between the centre of empire and its frontier, proconsuls were frequently torn by the conflicting demands of their masters in London and of colonial communities. With the outbreak of the Second World War, proconsular autonomy faded fast. Proconsuls were now called upon to do more and more for the defence and the development of colonies. They worked phenomenally long hours, on the stump and in meetings by day, shifting paper at night. And as they did, their role evolved from being monarchs to managers and ultimately to becoming proconsuls of emerging nation-states. 1940, indeed, drew a line under salutary neglect. The prosecution of world war required the defence of imperial frontiers and fortresses, the mobilisation of men and materials, close collaboration, not only between government and the armed forces, but also between Britain and its allies. Having become a wasting asset in the 1920s and 30s, India was primed once again as an engine of war. It would provide two million fighting men for the Middle East, North Africa and Southeast Asia. However, the deeper Viceroy Linlithgow dug into the resources of India, the greater the antagonism he provoked in the subcontinent. This came to a head when Gandhi's Quit India campaign turned violent. The cry to quit India was raised after the loss of Singapore to Japan. And that loss was the greatest military disaster to befall the British Empire. The enemy was now at the gates of the Raj, and the future of Britain's Asian Empire was bleak. Desperate for the vital war materials which hitherto had been supplied by Southeast Asia, London now instructed governors in Africa to exploit systematically the resources of their colonies. Meanwhile, Malta, whose survival was crucial to Britain's position in the Mediterranean and the campaigns in North Africa and the Middle East, was attacked by Italy and Germany. For two years, the Axis blockaded and bombarded the island. Unlike Singapore and its hapless governor, Shenton Thomas, Malta and its governor, Lieutenant General Sir William Dobby, emerged battered but unbowed. Governor Dobby braved the air raids alongside the Maltese, who came to believe that Dobby led a charmed life. The people like Dobby 
observed Mountbatten. He is a religious maniac and prays aloud after dinner, invoking the aid of God in destroying our enemies. This is highly approved of by the Maltese, who have the same idea about God. A year later, the gallant islanders were awarded the George Cross, and Dobby returned to Britain, sick, exhausted, but a national hero. His successor was another national hero, Lord Gort, who had won the Victoria Cross in the First World War. Now, when Churchill invested Gort with the powers of supreme commander of Malta, both military powers and civil powers, Churchill took care not to leave him to cope in isolation. After all, uncoordinated leadership had in large measure contributed to the Singapore debacle. The Prime Minister therefore made sure that Gort reported to, and was in turn supported by, his superiors in the Middle East Command. Malta's place in this wider regional command structure indicates that while governors now had much more to do than they had before the war, they were also supervised much more closely. To coordinate the empire at war, Churchill dispatched ministers of cabinet rank to key regional satrapies. For example, Oliver Littleton was sent out to the Middle East and Lord Swinton formerly Philip Cunliffe Lister, was sent to West Africa. At the same time, it was also sometimes necessary to override the parochialism of governors for the sake of the Grand Alliance, especially where British dependencies abutted the interests of the United States or were situated in its backyard. The vociferous anti-colonialism of Americans, combined with their own expansionist tendencies, stirred up bad feeling in the British West Indies. Here, the Anglo-American deal, whereby the United States gave the United Kingdom old destroyers in exchange for the right to establish military bases in British colonies, became a major bone of contention. King George VI confided in Sir Gordon Lethem when the governor was on leave from Antigua, saying that the arrangement placed Britain in a humiliating position. We are, complained his majesty, we are being treated as Panamanians. In Trinidad, Sir Hubert Young, who had served with Lawrence of Arabia in the First World War, fell foul of an uncooperative American commanding officer when he attempted to uphold his authority as governor. It was a row that disturbed Washington and London, and Churchill moved in immediately. Without giving the governor a chance to defend himself, he sacrificed Young on the altar of the special relationship. On the other hand, it was Lord Knollis's years of business experience in America and his sure touch with Americans that persuaded Churchill to appoint him as governor of Bermuda. And Knollis was in due course succeeded by Lord Burley, the 400 metres hurdle gold medalist of the 1928 Olympics, who notwithstanding the criticism that at the age of 37 he was far too young for such an august position, but Lord Murley and his appointment was fully justified by completely captivating the Americans.
And so we have military defeats, colonial losses, Asian nationalism, and American anti-colonialism, all of which in the early 1940s put the future of empire in doubt. But from 1943, London embarked on planning a new imperial order for the post-war world. This imperial order was designed to coexist with the Atlantic Charter principle of national self-determination. Following the general election of 1945, the Labour government embarked on a long-term strategy to reconfigure the empire as a commonwealth of self-governing nations. On the one hand, Labour sought an honourable escape from imperial burdens in South Asia, and consequently aptly summarily dismissed Wavell from India and Dorman Smith from Burma, replacing them with Mountbatten and with Rance, both of whom were in tune with Labour's commitment to an early transfer of power. Elsewhere, and especially in Africa, on the other hand, Labour launched a raft of initiatives to promote economic development, social welfare, constitutional engineering and regional cooperation. Only a year or so before, proconsuls had been charged with the task of exploiting colonial resources for the war effort. Now they were being instructed to manage the investment of unprecedented amounts of British manpower, money and time in the pursuit of development. This colonialism, a constructive colonialism, was designed to earn dollars for Britain, provide the British with cheap food, and to benefit colonial peoples. Now, constructive colonialism called for constructive governors. One minister even proposed a program of political education to bring governors up to date. This program would include secondment to Whitehall, attendance at parliamentary debates, attendance at parliamentary committees. It would also involve the governors paying visits to rotary clubs and to factories and to political meetings and to trade union gatherings. Heralds of this modernisation included Gerald Creasy and Edward Gent, who were transferred from the colonial office to take up governor jobs in the Gold Coast and Malaya, respectively. Another herald of modernisation was Frederick Burroughs, a former president of the National Union of Railway Men, whom aptly picked out for the governorship of Bengal. And then there were three former Labour MPs, Lord Baldwin, Francis Douglas and Lord Winster, who were sent to the Leewards, Malta and Cyprus. So after the war, governors were becoming managers of a new and possibly a more progressive imperialism, which was planned in London. This metropolitan direction was assisted by improved communications and development in the media that exposed colonial government to unprecedented scrutiny in Parliament and now at the United Nations. Whereas before the war, secretaries of state had rarely strayed from Britain, now, taking advantage of air travel, they regularly dropped out of the sky to find out for themselves. They also convened as a matter of course London conferences of colonial administrators and politicians. 
Furthermore, the Secretary of State now readily recalled governors for consultations. Yet, a returning governor, when he got back to London, understandably preoccupied by the problems of his colony, often found it difficult to win the attention of a minister who was distracted by issues in a host of other territories. Governors would increasingly find themselves in this predicament as the pace of decolonization quickened. When, for example, Sir Kennedy Travaskis at last got his ten minutes to talk to Ian MacLeod about Aden, as it happened, the Secretary of State was simultaneously snatching a sandwich lunch, glancing at newspapers and issuing instructions to officials on the West Indies, Central Africa and West Africa. He was, Travaskis recalled, like one of those international chess champions who think of taking on a couple of dozen opponents all at once. It was admirable, but it was an odd way to end an empire. As is illustrated by Travaskis's encounter with MacLeod, central direction ran into all sorts of difficulties. First of all, some of the old guard, like Philip Mitchell in Kenya or Arthur Richards in Nigeria, didn't take easily to this new dirigism. Secondly, modernising governors were but a qualified success. Former Labour MPs and Whitehall civil servants may have been on message, if you like, but they lacked field experience. They were mistrusted by the colonial community and they were easily wrong-footed by nationalists. Thirdly, programmes for economic and social development had unforeseen political consequences. They both raised and dashed local expectations. In challenging custom, they risked resistance, notably the Accra riots of February 1948, which came as a shock to all who then believed Ghana to be a model colony, or Gold Coast as it was then. Out of his depth, Governor Creasy was transferred. A few months later, Edward Gent, another Whitehall placeman and the architect of the post-war rehabilitation of Southeast Asia. Edward Gent was removed from Malaya on the outbreak of the communist insurgency. The idealistic and eccentric Lord Baldwin was recalled from the Leeward Islands when he sided with plantation workers against the sugar barons. Cohen, who had designed Labour's New Africa policy, was opposed when, as governor of Uganda, he made attempts at nation-building. And he was opposed by the supporters of the Kabaka, the Magandan king. When policies were derailed by colonial emergencies, and those in Ghana and Malaya were followed in close succession by others in Kenya and Cyprus and British Guiana and elsewhere, London's response was either to draft in a governor of proven common sense, like Arden Clark, who replaced Creasy, or to confer a governor with plenipotentiary power, as happened when Templar was sent to Kuala Lumpur at the height of the Malayan emergency. But in any case, constructive colonialism could not be imposed. It had to be negotiated. Proconsuls could not avoid brokering deals with colonial leaders and nationalist politicians. 
And those proconsuls who enjoyed full support from London discovered that they were regaining considerable freedom of manoeuvre. In addition, a governor who commanded London's confidence, Mountbatten did and Wavell did not, was well placed to win the trust of nationalists too. Because for all their opposition to colonial rule, nationalists recognised the value of working with a governor who embodied the authority of the state which they expected to inherit. And at every stage in their convoluted and frequently acrimonious discussions, the balance of power shifted from governor to nationalist. As they won concessions regarding elections, ministerial responsibilities, the constitution of the successor state, the date of independence, the extent of British aid afterwards, nationalists made inroads upon the functions, powers, and in the end, the authority of governors. At the same time, the pragmatic proconsuls adjusted their own expectations. To begin with, they believed that power should be transferred when the time was right. That is to say, when they as governors and the ministers at home were satisfied that the colony had been adequately prepared for independence. Fairly soon, however, their watchword became better too fast than too slow. To illustrate this, in 1960, Macmillan inquired whether Nigerians were really ready for independence. The governor replied that they were not, but that independence should be conceded in any case. He explained it in this way. Delay will convert all the most intelligent people, all the ones I've been training, convert them all into rebels. I shall have to put them all in prison. There will be violence, there will be bitterness, there will be hatred. And since all they could do, all they could hope to do, was to keep pace with nationalist demands, governors now acted as messengers of colonial nationalism. They became, in short, proconsuls of emergent nation-states. By the time the wind of change had blown itself out in Africa, British colonies had been reduced to outposts. They were no longer outposts of empire, however. They were outposts without empire. Britain retained responsibility for them because they were thought to be too small and too poor for full independence. Otherwise, the British government would have rid itself of what had become millstones in a post-colonial age. And what of the governors? As one of them, Charles Johnston, commented in self-mockery, by the mid-1960s, they had that that rather touching appeal of an obsolescent species. Massive, fierce-looking, slow-moving animals, stamping and bellowing away in their reserve. Let them roar their heads off, wrote Johnston. Soon there won't be any more of them left. With a body as big as a locomotive, they have a brain the size of a nut. How can you expect them to survive? Well, in this talk... I haven't provided a rigorous prosopography or taxonomy of British consuls. What I have done, I think, 
is um, offer an impressionistic survey to support the argument that the role of proconsuls changed significantly as empire ended. Before the Second World War, they appeared to be monarchs of all they surveyed. In reality, however, they recoiled from intervention in colonial societies. And they did so because their resources were meagre. Wartime defence of the empire increased proconsular activity under metropolitan direction. And so too did the constructive colonialism of the post-war period. But the unintended consequences of this strategy, together with unforeseen events, jolted measured withdrawal into haphazard retreat. Downsizing the empire became more time-consuming than staying put and contrasted starkly with the relatively light touch of pre-war colonial administration. As decolonisation gathered momentum, the balance of proconsular duties shifted away from presenting British policies to the colonies and towards representing emergent nations to the British government. Even though they were inclined to bend before the wind rather than to make waves, the proconsuls were never more crucial for imperial management than when it was being wound up. They were, as Ronald Hyam has put it, like plants which put on their finest display as a herald of death. That said, their record was mixed. Some were assassinated and attempts were made on the lives of others. Some were sacked, often as scapegoats for the mistakes of others or on account of problems beyond their control. Sir Robert Armitage, poor chap, was removed twice, once from Cyprus, the other time from Nyasaland. Some scuttled without leaving a friendly rate successor state in place, as did Cunningham from Palestine and Trevelyan from Aden. Some were complicit in colonial atrocities, as allegedly was Sir Evelyn Baring in Kenya. One proconsul was excluded altogether from the process of decolonisation. This was Sir Humphrey Gibbs, governor of Rhodesia at the time of UDI. Gibbs was marooned in Government House Salisbury after Ian Smith cut off his salary, his official car and his police escort. And when he lost his telephone, Gibbs resorted to communicating with Whitehall from a public call box. But some did make it to the podium on Independence Day and departed with enhanced reputations. Association with an orderly transfer of power could bring rewards, such as, say, selection as a post-colonial governor with non-executive functions representing the Queen in a new Commonwealth state, or elevation to the House of Lords, or some other appointment in the public service, or as a non-exec on a board of directors. Mountbatten resumed his naval career and rose to be chief of the, of the defence staff. Hugh Foote, as Lord Carradon, became Britain's permanent representative at the United Nations. In many cases, however, success proved short-lived. With the passage of time, the elaborate independent settlements 
that had patched over cracks in emerging nation-states came unstuck. As skin-deep parliamentary democracies succumbed to neo-colonialism, authoritarianism, civil war, corruption, destitution, so proconsular reputations have been scrutinised afresh. It has to be said that the capacity of governors to determine the manner of their departure and to provide for the post-colonial future was strictly limited. In the countdown to decolonisation, their options shrank day by day. Reluctantly, they were forced to abandon cherished principles, such as a united India or a multiracial Malaya. However loath they may have been to do so, they were persuaded to ignore the claims of vulnerable minorities or ditch former allies like Indian princes. At the same time, they tried to make the best of things when the nationalist leaders whom they preferred were displaced by others whom they mistrusted, as when Dankwa was superseded by Nkrumah in Ghana, or Dato On by Tunku Abdurrahman in Malaya, or Joshua Nkomo by Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. Not surprisingly, the last proconsuls had mixed feelings about decolonization and their part in it. Which brings me finally back to the tears shed by the last governor of Hong Kong on the 1st of July 1997. The event has reminded me of a long-forgotten examination question on the significance of the execution of Charles I. The question ran something on this line. When the king's head was lifted up to the crowd outside Whitehall Palace, a sigh went through the crowd. Analyse that sigh. So what are we to make of the governor's tears? Were they tears of pride in a job well done? Or of regret that so much remained undone? Or of relief that a settlement of sorts had been reached? Or of sheer exhaustion? Or of apprehension as to the future? Or of emotion appropriate for a turning point in history? And if it was the last of these, what was the turning point? We might ask what had ended and what was beginning and who had been freed. Was it the former subject peoples from colonial rule or was it the former rulers from imperial burdens? Thank you for hearing me out. This event was recorded live on the 5th of March 2009 at the National Archives, Kew.